what I think people don't realize is we're all in it to get better every day. And we're sharing our skills, whether it's sharing open source techniques, ideas, technology, that's where it's coming together. So in fact, if anything, I think, you know, like this terminology, this movement is a community-based organization, just as like Roger said, like open source. And no individual made this happen. The community owns this collectively. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. DJ and Roger are both good friends of mine and have been working in data and ML for the last 20 to 30 years. Roger was for a long time the co-chair of the Strata Conference and VP of Research at O'Reilly. And DJ was the head of data science at LinkedIn and the chief data scientist under the Obama administration. They both recently worked on the California COVID response using data, and I could not be more excited to talk to them. All right, so I, I have right, a whole bunch right. of really good, thoughtful <laughs> questions. And then one question is probably slightly annoying for DJ, so I just thought I'd get it out of the way and, and start there, which is, uh, I was I was telling my wife, Noga, about talking to you this morning, and I was saying, DJ, you were the, the person that came up with the term data scientist. And then my wife was like, no, no, that's not true. And then we were discussing it, and then I was like looking it up, and I kind of couldn't figure it out. And so I was just wondering if you could let me know what the real... Sure. Because I feel like at least you made the term popular, right? Yeah. So I think the first part to call out here is Roger actually gets credit for making big data popular and, and versus like when he, people were talking about data. So he, he Roger did his credit for big data. Wow. He, like, I think the part about that, most people don't realize that. Roger never <laughs> talks about it, but he's the guy. And I, I remember going to an early talk of Roger's where he's like big data. And I'm like, who's talking about big data? Like what, what is like, is it all big, all data big? And he laid out an argument for it. And I was like, oh yeah. And then you saw it kind of catch fire afterwards. And, and so Roger, you should talk about big data, but I'm happy to talk about where I think the origin story of data science comes from. Yeah, let's start with that. And then I want to hear about the, yeah. I want to hear about the origin story of big data and then what I should trademark and what domain names I should buy. <laughs> 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 totally. So, you know, like part of the thing of data people, especially in that early era of LinkedIn and Facebook and, uh, and others, was that, that there was a community starting to form of people getting together. And, and what do you call themselves? And so people had many different versions of names that were going on. And, you know, even going back to the 60s, there's, there's been arguments of people where they found documentation and people titling things data science. And, and so it's been floating around and I wouldn't be surprised if we find a lot more examples of what people had been calling data science. What was also going on at the same time as people were trying to figure this out, people were playing around with the terms like analytics scientists and Jonathan Goldman was the guy who came up with that. Pete Skomarat was talking about the idea of a data artist. And that actually got raised at a board meeting at LinkedIn was like, are we painting a palette? Are we creating a palette with, with that? What I recall is, is, and what we put in our book and it was when we were getting ready for the IPO for LinkedIn, Facebook was it. Jeff Hammerbacher and I both got together and we were like, Hey, HR is breathing down both of our necks. What do we kind of call people? Cause we had too many different job titles. And so it was like, well, what's the listing and what actually went through those is, is, is you start to think about the terms like analysts felt a little too Wall Street. Research scientist was a title that 
uh, Yahoo had really popularized for where the data scientists sat with Cameron Marlowe and other people. But they've kind of always pushed out to the side of the product process or the product engineering process. And so there was kind of like a little too researchy. If you kind of go with some of the things more statistician or economics or, or any of those, you're creating a war right off the bat. But, but also the term hadn't really quite caught on except for places like at Google with the Hal Variance team. And, and so what we did is as we kind of went through that list, Jeff actually was the one who kind of was like, well, we're starting to think about this term data scientist. And what I took it back to, it was like, well, that seems plenty reasonable. I took it back to the team and Monica Rigatti actually had the idea of saying, well, we're LinkedIn, we have all the job postings, let's post all the jobs with the different titles and see what everyone applies to. And so we did that, Monica actually constructed the test for it. And guess what? Everyone we hired was in the term data scientist. And so that's why it sticks. And so I think a lot of people have gotten caught up in this origin story, but I think there's two parts that are important. One, it exemplifies that this was a team effort. You know, it, it's very easy for people to say, oh, DJ and Jeff did this. It's a community-wide thing. Right. This, this was a broad, diverse community that was all coming together to make this happen. The second is, you know, why did it take off? And not only did we sort of data science our way into this title, but the reason I think it takes off is because no one knows what the hell it means. And, and I literally I say that with great seriousness because and, and Roger knows is like as you kind of watch these fields evolve. And you've seen this, Lucas, tremendous amount through through all your work over the over the years is like people like to put people in boxes. They like to put skill sets in the boxes. And they're like, oh, if you're doing data, you're not supposed to do product. If you're doing product, you're not supposed to do engineering. And we're sort of like, why can't we do it all if we've got the skill set? And the data scientist person, people are kind of like, okay, they're smart and they have superpowers. We don't understand them, but they really add value. And if you kind of pull on that string of why do they add value, the reason funnily is, is because they're allowed in the room and they have context. And once you have context, you can take your skills and apply it to the problem faster than other people can. And so it's the ambiguity that has, has come out. And I think that has led to the rise of the title being actually taken over. If you asked Jeff or me back then, I'm very confident that I would have said, no way this is going to be a thing that sticks. This is going to be really something that we really label our teams. And I think part of the, the reason it also took off in there is frankly, LinkedIn and Facebook were very successful in their IPOs. And people said, what's behind that? And people said, ah, Roger's term, big data. And the whole thing that makes big data come alive are these data scientists. And so I, I think that in my view is how we should think about where this is coming from and where it, it also gives us indication where we need to go. But I guess like there must have been something new going on with the the sort of social network companies of I guess the the mid to late aughts that there was like a new a new need or something. I mean I you know I run a I think a pretty standard business model at at weights and biases and it's really hard to imagine operating without a data science team. It there must have been some kind of function before that. Like what what sort of changed in the requirements that there it was needed to make a new role that that didn't exist before. Well, let me lay out an argument from the, the, the late 90s, and then Roger should dovetail because he's seen this, the whole evolution uh, of, of this. What I think had happened, and this really started around 
you know, just around 9-11 time period is people are like, wait a second, there's signal in the noise, but no one's actually able to capitalize on it. Like, how do we find the signal? How do we do something with it? And so you did see a lot of the early e-commerce companies like eBay and others actually had the equivalent of data science team. They were just analytics functions in those roles. And people were called business analysts or other different titles. Google had a lot of these people and, and, and had a lot of impact. I think the seminal difference that we saw, which was really building on Yahoo's research team and, and the, the, those kind of groups, is that the data team could actually build products, not just come up with insights. And so at LinkedIn, the data science team had one part, which is, hey, how are we doing? Metrics, dashboards, all of that thing. Had another component, which is, you're responsible for revenue. You're responsible for engagement. You, your responsibility is to build things, make stuff happen. And you're a design team, a product team, an engineering team, all that comes together. And then there was another part, which is you got to open up new turf and help things in new ways. And so that was like security. Because if you're going to fight bad guys who got you know, super sophisticated data tools, the only way to survive that is by bringing increased data science and functionality to actually to bear to that. But Roger, let me hand it back to you. Sure. I mean, I think what changed, and it was right around the time frame you're talking about, is suddenly there were little companies with big data. And they weren't going to go out and buy Oracle, or I was at Sybase in 99, they weren't going to go by Sybase. They needed to come up with their own thing. And the primary thing I think those big social media companies had to do was write quickly. And that meant in a distributed fashion. And then you've got Jeff Dean doing MapReduce at, at Google to start that going. And then you've got the Yahoo people taking that idea and making it out. And what's interesting is that it kind of dovetails with open source becoming kind of mainstream because now you've got people who are willing to you know, use open source because their company is banking on it. I remember talking to Abdur Chowdhury, who was the chief data scientist at, at Twitter. And this might've been like 2004, 2005. And he's like, I wouldn't use Oracle because I can't go into the code and fix it. You know, if there's a problem and that that became a really important thing. And I also think that that was kind of the era when the best engineers in the world were really centering on the Bay area. And that's kind of where I, in some ways when I like wrote the essay about big data and stuff and was doing those talks where I used big data. I was trying to capture this notion of having to store a lot of data, do it in a distributed way, analyzing big masses of data instead of like kind of little or medium-sized pieces of data. And that this became more the like core of what companies were, were doing and, mm -hmm. and trying to like, get that all in one thing. In fact, that's the way DJ and I met as I was writing a journal article with Ben Lorica on big data. And I knew Jonathan Goldman. And he said, well, you should come and talk to us. And, and so we did. And we really liked the way DJ's team had people arrayed all across these functions that we used to think of it were in separate pieces. Like he mentioned the product piece, he had visualization people, and they were all kind of together. And we we're like, you know, not only is a big data, it's kind of like a big group of people with these multiple functions that ended up being worth like integrating and worth coordinating with. And I think it was just a big thing because I had been doing data warehousing in the, in the late 90s. And that was as siloed a thing as imaginable in most companies. It was not part of the, the mainstream. And I think what happened is all of a sudden you had LinkedIn, Facebook, Google, where that was what the company did is 
capture a lot of data and try to make sense of it to, in some ways, improve what they're doing and in some ways to monetize what they were doing. So it's a lot of incentive. Uh, and it was just driven in a whole different direction because of the open source piece of it too. And I'll just add one thing about big data. So there's one personal part and then one other part. So the personal part is I've worked at home for a long time and I used to often bike to go a daily shop, right? So I'd go get some things. And so once every other 10 days or so, I had to do a big shop. And I think that this is just like a verbal tick that I use that there's little and big and big things. But the other thing is I got access to Simply Hired's data and it was huge for me. It was, it was two terabytes and two billion rows and I needed help. And I got introduced to Scott Yera at Greenplum and you know, we started doing that. So I know the first talk I gave where I officially used big data was around that you know, distributed data management and doing that. I guess the last thing I should say is I was at O'Reilly, which is famously meme generating as a company. <laughs> Incredibly so successful. I had a, right. I had a platform but, that people actually listen to. Yeah. The part there I think that, that I think hopefully people are also taking away is, is you know, this has been a very big tent phenomenon. And, and, you know, like Abder and Scott, Yara, I mean, Lucas, you all, like all of us work together. People don't realize like, you know, like when, like we were first comparing these ideas of like, how do we use Mechanical Turk? And then, you know, like we actually, like people don't, probably don't realize, like we ran a test head to head with each other of like, how could my team do, do it versus you? And we learned a lot more from each other. We ended up going with you and using you. But, but the, what I think people don't realize is we're all in it to get better every day. And we're sharing our skills, whether it's sharing open source techniques, ideas, technology, that's where it's coming together. So in fact, if anything, I think, you know, like this terminology, this movement is a community-based organization, just as like Roger said, like open source. And no individual made this happen. The community owns this collectively. You know, I'll, I'll bring up an interesting kind of adjunct to that. I don't know when it was, it was probably around 2010, 2011, but at the time there was, you know, MapReduce at Google, and then there was Hadoop starting to make a lot of waves out in the world. And Google, the people I know at Google were very much in support of Hadoop. And this was, I think people were evolving their kind of thinking about open source. The reason Google was so in support of Hadoop is that if you learned MapReduce on Hadoop, they could hire you. That it was a way of training people. And I think now open source is a, there's a different dynamic on why people do it. But back then that ended up being an important dynamic. But I think when you're ready to ML where everything is open source now is that that's the logical thing is that the ML tools are cool. They do a lot of stuff, they, they're great. But what you really need is people. And the more people you get involved the more likely these things are going to get traction and become uh, part of the mainstream. So that is why PyTorch and TensorFlow and, and those kind of things are, I think in the, if you call it in the public domain, but in that open source way are shareable because what's really more important is what you do with them than the tools themselves. You know, it's funny not to turn this into a whole reminiscing uh, session, but I, DJ, I remember right after meeting with you back then, I think you had recently left uh, eBay I remember I got a meeting with the eBay CTO, which was a huge deal for me at the time, you know, because we were selling, you know, data products. And I, I have this vivid memory of him telling me that he couldn't possibly store all of the user data. Like, you know, he basically released, you know, erased like 99.9% .9 of it and just like saved the little bits of the rest of it. Cause that's kind of all you needed to do anything 
um, important. I remember thinking like, um, wow, that seems so painful to like erase that data. You might, you might want that data, but it's, it's funny because now I feel like no company would dream of erasing data. It makes me wonder like how much of all this is just driven by the ability to actually store all of this data, right? That, now, oh, now you that uh, actually, this is what people don't always realize. This is one of the reasons I actually moved on from eBay is is the the straw that broke the camel's back and, and ebay obviously recovered from this but it was that there was a big argument from a number of us that said hey every time we want to do something interesting we have to go to the lords of the data warehouse and ask permission and 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 then to to get something done took months and and, and it should it was like was pretty easy obvious stuff and so one of the things that, and I remember this meeting very clearly, is a number of us had this technical session. We basically said, like, look, the bet for us has to be Hadoop. There's no other way. Like, we cannot sit on traditional infrastructure and do the problems that we need to to, to compete. It's it's business critical. And those ideas got pushed out. And and effectively, all those people that were that were on that mission of doing it all left to, to other things. Chris Riccamini, and you know, one of the kind of key people behind Kafka was, was one of them as well. And what it showed is, and I think this is something that, that companies have it need to grok with respect to machine learning, is that there are paradigm jumping moments. And if you don't jump, you will have to jump later, but you're going to be so far behind the curve because eBay obviously adopted one of the biggest Hadoop clusters with Cloudera seven years later, five, seven years later, but they could have been so much more competitive and done so much more. And I, it, it sort of, it, it strikes me that there's a similar moment that is happening around machine learning, that if you don't get on the bandwagon now, you're, you're late, if, if not already late. Yeah, interesting. I mean, of course, I I, I would agree with that. I, I actually had a question. <laughs> uh, I had a question I wrote down for you, Roger, that's that's maybe poorly formed, but I, I feel like you kind of had front row seats to this. I'm not even sure if it's if it's completely true, but it feels like there was this sort of massive shift from Hadoop to Spark maybe five or six years ago. And it, it seemed like it, it was kind of slow. And then like all of a sudden, and I, I was kind of wondering, it seemed like you just really saw that. And I was wondering if the, if what you think about that and and like, if there's something that, if it was some fundamental problem with Hadoop that they they could have fixed, or you know, if there's something coming beyond Spark, I was just I was really curious to get your your take on that. Yeah, so I actually have a kind of strong opinions on this. but be easy to like try to puncture holes in. I think Hadoop was a write engine, and that people needed a read engine. So like the fundamental early problem was the one you guys just talked about with eBay. How do you get all this stuff to disks? Well, distributed was the way you do it but it was kind of slow to get stuff out. And things like no schema, that ends up isn't really very good for if you're trying to do any analytics uh, on it. And, and that I remember I got in a lot of arguments with people where they were telling me MapReduce is the way everyone's gonna work. And I'm like, there's this no way that that's gonna be the case. There's just too much embedded SQL. SQL is very productive. And you know, in a place like the Bay Area with its high concentration of great engineers, yeah, a lot of people are getting MapReduce, but a lot of people weren't getting MapReduce. In fact, when I was first learning, I had the lucky thing because I was working with Greenplum, Joe Hellerstein used to come to my home and we'd go through MapReduce problems as they were trying to put in a MapReduce part of it. But my sense was that it was going to be SQL that was going to win and that the analytics, instead of just storing stuff, which is like step one, it's the kind of the, the analytic support that really mattered. And you know, Spark was just better 
at that than, than Hadoop was. And, you know, when I think it was Impala was the first time that really SQL was, was kind of available. Well, Spark came right off, right away with SQL. The other thing that happened, and this is just like, just kind of an anomaly of, not an anomaly, but just one of those harmonic convergences, Python was starting to become just a de facto language right around when Spark had a Python binding. And that meant a lot more people were just able to get into and do the kind of work that made sense. Also, just part of it was Spark being in memory. It was just mm -hmm. fast. So as long as you were able to make your RDSs and eventually the, the more table-like things in memory, then you could run really fast queries. And, and I think what it comes down to with all this, you had mentioned the kind of disconnect, DJ, between you're getting data at eBay and having to wait for it. So I was running the equivalent organization at Sybase and I had the data engineers and the data scientists right together. Of course they weren't called data scientists, but, and I was, I was ran the group, I did both things. And the reason we did that is so that no one could complain that it took months to get anything is I wanted to keep everything kind of tight together. So I think go forward to when Spark started coming out, you were able to actually do data engineering and data science work all in the same platform. You didn't need someone to pull all this stuff for you. You could do it yourself because it was SQL and you could just kind of pull it in and, and go through the whole thing up to even early ML stuff at the time. Yeah, the other thing is, is Spark is cheap. So like one of the things that people like, you know, the eBay team had some amazing technologists that are sort of all, all that sun sort of generation of deep, deep infrastructure thinkers. And so they used to have a TIPCO bus and they had this basically stream processor sitting on top of it, except it's very expensive. It's, it's you know, just because of the, under the, just the structural constraints of the time. With, with Spark, you know, one of the things that was beautiful about it that we sort of saw is like, wait, we could have a stream processor finally? Like we, we can actually do computation like without having to wait and doing all sitting behind the ETL pane. That gave us a massive leg up on a key set of problems, every, mostly, you know, like that were time bound, like fraud and security kind of, kind of issues. And so that was natural to gravitate to versus the, the Hadoop frameworks, the MapReduce frameworks. The other part is I think Roger's pointing out, which I still think is there, is a lot of people want to work. And we saw this for Kafka also, is like, we were going to put the logic layer on there, but it just takes so much time of development, even with the open source community to graduate these things. And Spark didn't have to worry about the underlying bus. But the, the part there that, that I, I think is that we're seeing is different community, like data has moved into a space of like, just like the background view of, you've got specialized tools. Right, like you, like the for depending on the team, you're going to need different things because most people who work in MapReduce, that is a leap way too far for most 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 individuals and teams, especially when you're bringing in fresh talent from other disciplines or other areas. Yeah, I just want to bring up one. And this is a bit of a corollary to this stuff, but when things first started, and I know Lucas, we haven't even brought up Math Club yet, but you know they only started <laughs> Math Club in San Francisco. Diversity cognitive, physical background, all these kinds is something that leads to like really a lot better outcomes. And I think that that's kind of the, at tension with the things like MapReduce, which kind of are exclusionary and, and are really geared towards people who are really technically adept, that the companies that are really gonna do well are the ones who can bring the tools out. And I'm not talking about just democratizing data because I've got a, a really clear issue around too much democratizing data, but getting people 
who can go into the data and figure things out and having a lot of different perspectives on that is really gonna make a big difference. And I think that that means having tools that more people can use to get their matters. And I think when you look back at the aughts and maybe the early tens, that they were still pretty hard to do. And that now we're at a place where, yeah, a lot of people can spin something up and, and start to make sense of it from, from all sorts of different backgrounds. It's a great point. I, I, I wanted to go back, Roger, to an earlier point that you made before I forget, which is you, you sort of made a, a little bit of a, I don't know, it seemed like you were a little bit dismissive of kind of NoSQL databases, which is ironic because I learned about NoSQL databases in your math club and have kind of continued to use them for the last <laughs> 20 plus years since then. So I'm gonna, I was actually curious, do you, do you think that it's generally a bad idea to, I mean, of course, um, everyone uses them now for some Right. No, I don't think they're a bad idea at all. I think they were not a replacement. They're, they're good for what they were. And I think that the main argument about schema-less was like, uh -huh. that was a really terrible argument. Because if you want to make sense of data, you probably want to um, have it in, organized in a way that people know. So you, know, you think about analytics, it's a combination of things, it's a combination of the data, the tools you're using, and the person who's using the data. So mm -hmm. the more that the person can know about the data, the less kind of cognitive load on them to get into it, the better they're gonna do. And having to deal with different schemas is not a way to promote that. In fact, what you end up promoting is someone who's got this like photographic memory rather than just kind of, kind of broad memory. So, I mean, it's kind of like the way JSON is, is clearly the way that most people move data around. I much prefer getting CSS, CSV data because it's, or, it's organized in a way, and you're not having all the overhead of tags and stuff that are telling you what everything is. And you can move like right into what, what usually I want to do with the data, was, is trying to make some sense um, out of it. So I'm only dismissive in it as a pure replacement. It's, it's like a lot of things when it's the right tool, like you've got a lot of text. Yeah, mm -hmm. a, a NoSQL database is great. But for plenty of things, I want a key. You know, I want a primary key to, to and I want something to dedupe against. I, I just, I just ran a big deduping project for the state of California around home bases, this time, time card data. And they gave me stuff and I had to dedupe it. It took 19 steps to, <laughs> to dedupe it, to like try to make a kind of a, a primary key that I could use and pick the right one. And when I had multiples and stuff. So I think that stuff matters. I think that like, and I'd love to hear someone argue, you know, the other point, but that you end up with things kind of messy, which was maybe okay, but it's, it's, you end up having to build taxonomies and the kind of things that help you make sense of data that end up looking a lot more like tables than hmm. like a, a schema list thing. DJ, do you have, do you have thoughts here? You, I... no, I'm, I'm with Roger. I, I think one of the things that we've seen with a tool that is you know, being used for many other things, you end up building a lot of scaffolding or process around it that then suddenly is like, hey, there's data dictionaries for this and there's a you know, manuals and, and wikis to help you get through the, the, the schema-less world. And you're just like, so did we just put like a schema structure that's just meta around this? And, and you know, Roger and I both had the, the, the opportunity and good fortune of working on California with a, on the COVID response. And, you know, like there's a lot of really dumb, boring, unsexy problems that are the real rate limiter of progress. You know, people are very apt to doing, saying, oh, there's a northern data source, we'll grab it, we'll put it in. And then you ask how many people are actually ever looking at it? And it's like zero. 
And you go around and then you kind of say, you look at the requests where people have, and you're like, everyone's requesting this data. How come no one's looking at it? And you go, oh, this is actually a comms accessibility problem. And, and, and you know, it's, it's, we're trying to solve this with all this machinery and everything else. And literally like in the California COVID response, you know, the thing that changed the game, I, myself and three other state people, we wrote a data dictionary in Excel for like, here's all the data that we have. And we just sent it around to all the different departments. And we're like, this is what we have. Here's where it is. If you see something new or you want something, here's the new process. And we're gonna go super old school and just, you can print this out, you can share it. Here's all the data that you want. And, and, and so people could flip through it and be like, oh, I need COVID case counts by this. Oh, great, it's already in there, sweet. Right, they rock and roll. It, those things move the needle more than just having like this brand name data warehouse or super other cool stuff or, you know, a dashboards up the wazoo because they, because they don't get looked at or utilized. And, and I think one of the things I have to, I think I find myself saying a lot is what problem are we trying to solve? And does this actually solve the problem? And, you know, I suspect this is true for all of us is like, we're in plenty of times where people are like, the problem you're trying to solve is not the problem you really have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I have this thing where I often tell people, what does paradise look like? That's the question I ask. Then they give me, and they're usually not paradise, isn't, you know, clouds and harp playing, but like, you know, the business problem they're trying to solve. And then you go, okay, how do I step through? What do I, how do I get there? And then that process leads into what kind of data, you know, you might use. And I actually, as you were saying that, DJ, about the, the data dictionary that you did, I mean, I think that's really important. I think there's some, if we want to get into this, like there's some fundamentals that people kind of forgot about that I think are, are worth kind of reiterating to, to, to put things um, in a more productive manner. But at the bottom of this, this list I kind of prepared for this is put human perspective first. And maybe I should have made that the top thing. Because I think what it ends up is we start thinking about the math and all that and, and you know, biases and, and everything that, that's part of this, but it ends up, it's really a human process. And what you're really trying to do is get humans to give them the kind of cognitive capacity to make better decisions, or at least to make decisions that are informed in a way that they can then learn from what they've done and, and move forward from there. Well, I want, I want to hear this, this list of best practices, but it, it reminds me, that reminds me of one of my favorite um, memories of you, Roger, which I, I don't think you, I don't know if you remember this. I don't know if it made such an impact on you, but I was once, I was late to meet you at, at our first office for weights and biases when it was like six people. And I remember you were already, you were like telling the, the head of or head of product, Carrie, you were telling her basically nobody wants data visualizations, they want insights. You know, and it's funny because our tool is like mainly a data visualization tool, it's one way of looking at it. And she was like nodding in agreement. And I, I was like worried she was like thinking about like taking all the graphs like out of our out of our product. It's like, oh my God, I'm like five minutes late. And like this is like oh, no, I, already happened. Yeah, I remember that. And that actually is on my note. And, and what I probably should, you know, I think we were just hanging, hanging around and yeah, yeah. trying to make a point. So one of the points is when you've got KPIs, when you've got someone who's in the data every day and they know what they're looking for, you need a dashboard. You need this kind of visualization. But when you want to communicate, and I like when DJ used the word comms, you need narration and you need annotation. 
a dashboard won't do it. So I can just give one example from the state. They had mobility kind of patterns for every county in California. So there's 58 counties. So there's 58 little charts arrayed in a, you know, that, a lattice. Alpine County in California has 1,200 people. There's high schools bigger than that. And that showed as big as Los Angeles, which is the second biggest city in the country, you know, second biggest county in the country. That, that was not telling a story. That was just going to confuse people. And right. so the point I was trying to make when I was at your office <laughs> was more, more around that, that you need to include the things around narration and, and annotation. So that, again, bring the human part in so that you can make sense of it and to show like what's going on. If you've ever seen me give a recent presentation, I use the lipstick mode and I put big red circles around the things I want you to pay attention to. And then they, the slide appears with done on, then that comes on and then I say it so that I'm trying to like peg it a little bit into your, into your memory. And I think this gets actually to a pet peeve. Roger and I were talking about this some time ago, which is big, my biggest pet peeve, Roger, I'm curious your reaction to this. Is like, somebody's like, as you can see, <laughs> I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. There's 58 lines. <laughs> what are you talking about? They're like, and then they're like, as the graph shows, and you're like, I don't know what that means even. And, and people love these things. And you're just like, where the hell is the end? Tell me, we have a staying in national security bluff, bottom line up front. Mm, like, nice. Tell me what the bottom line up front is. And then I can get there. But like, if you're taking me on this journey of like, <laughs> like literature, right. I don't have time for that crap. I can yeah. help me understand. Like, could you go to the president and be like, well, let's go on a data journey together and let's talk about how we got here. And like, no, bottom line up front and then figure out if they're interested, how do you get them to the richness that helps get another level of, of, of understanding? Yeah, there's a thing that I always tell the analysts who work for me that you can at best communicate four things plus or minus three. So that's, you got one to seven things that you can try to communicate and you should say them up front, the bluff thing, you can go through it and then say them again at the end and save the detail for later. And I think what's hard for a lot of analysts is that for them, the story of how they got to where they got is pretty interesting to them. But yeah. it's really the insight that you really need to. So I joined this table and then I did this and then and everyone's like, oh my God. Right, they'll say something like, and I forgot to do a left join. <laughs> we don't want the github re we don't want the github repo like right all right right that's what appendixes are made for you throw that yeah. stuff in in there but um, well, you know, i wanted to ask you about i mean you've both mentioned kind of your work with covid the covid response or and i was kind of thinking i was thinking about covid and i feel like it's it's maybe the first time in my life that i feel like i've really consumed data visualizations from my government. So it does seem like, you know, I'm like starting to kind of get this communication, <laughs> you know, in, in like graphs and charts that are, you know, like reasonably like good and seem to be well thought out. But I was wondering like what, what you, like what problems you were trying to solve or like what were the big problems that data could solve with, with COVID and our government? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, maybe I'll start and then Roger, you wanna layer in because you, you kind of picked up a lot of the baton from me in our, our kind of first wave and then took us took it far further. So, the, you know, the, the way this happened is, you know, our intention wasn't to kind of go up to the, the, the Capitol and just be like, look, we're here. In fact, what it was, was we just happened to be on a phone call with a, a, a friend who was, you know, 
helping out at California, it was actually a state employee. And, you know, we're talking and they said, here's what we're thinking about data. And I was, remember sort of saying, well, that's not what I would do if I were you. And they're like, well, what would you do? And it's like famous last words. And so, you know, in a couple hours, I wrote a memo and said, here's the way I would frame it. Here's what I think is doable. Here's what's not. And here's how I would organize things. And, you know, next thing I know, like 24 hours later, we were driving up to Sacramento at like 5 a.m. to meet the team and start jumping in. And then we were up there for about 100 days. And the first part of it was, remember, at this time period, there was no data. Like people mm -hmm. think there was like lots of data. We had data that we weren't sure we could trust out of Wuhan. Mm -hmm. We had data off two cruise ships and a little bit of information when we were able to call our uh, friends who could connect us to other friends who were physicians in Northern Italy. That's all the data we had. There was all this talk, epidemiological models, all these things. There were no models that were like, this is the gold standard. There's no weather model for this. And so we were able, luckily enough, to have, and this, this story actually, interestingly enough, is being super detailed by, by Michael Lewis in his book that's released today. And you know, we had this amazing woman, Charity Dean, who is working on things. We had another guy, Adam Reedhead, who is another public health official, and Amy Tong, who's running you know, information technology for the state of California. is amazing human. These are real. These are people we're, we should be grateful for. And what they, they kind of were putting together was like, well, what, what's the model? And we found that one of the models, everyone was looking at the models for all of a state. So the model for Delaware is the same as the model for California. That doesn't make sense. And that doesn't help us think about how to think about LA, San Francisco versus Alpine County or, you know, some, or Tahoe area. And, and so we needed a more sophisticated one. Luckily, there was a, a, a research uh, scientist named Justin Lesseter out of John Hopkins who had a pretty sophisticated model. And sorry, this model- this you, model of what? Like, what, what are you modeling? Yeah. So this is modeling. It's basically a set of differential equations. And it says basically a person's, how many, you start with a population, you sort of sprinkle some base conditions of those that are infected, they at some percentage get other people uh, um, to be you know, infected, symptomatic, asymptomatic ratios. Some portion of them will die, some portion of them will survive. And then that's it, like super simple. Now you need other things in there like, well, what about people who commute between the Bay Area and LA? Mm -hmm. What about different age demographics? What about closing schools? What will that do? And so they had started to build more and more sophistication in the model. And so you could run an ensemble, many, many scenarios. The only problem is this was a research thing. So it's running under somebody's desk. And luckily we were able to call on Sam Shaw, who really deserves a lot of the credit for scaling people you may know at LinkedIn, Jonathan Goldman and Mike Greenfield really kind of came up with the ideas and Sam Shaw scaled it and made it really a machine learning platform. And Josh Wills, who was at Cloudera and then at Slack, you know, figuring out how to make data engineering work. The two of them with Justin Lesseter's team and with a massive help from Werner Vogel and the Amazon team took that model and ported it over in a matter of days. And so now we're able to run hundreds of simulations. Those simulations are what led to those first graphs that people saw of the exponential curve that were shown on press conferences by Governor Gavin Newsom. That also led everyone to see like, holy cow, if we don't get this under control, here's where our bed capacity is right now. 
here's our bed capacity if we put them in parking lots and do everything. And here's a curve. And a lot of people at that time were like, this is garbage. They didn't see what's happening literally in India right now. They weren't seeing what was happening in New York. That model, that effort of a combination of data scientists, state experts, and technologists combined together with the policymakers, that's what led to the, the state order on saying we need to stay at home. Because there's one goal. One goal is to preserve the healthcare system for tomorrow. Because if physicians get sick or die, you don't get that back. That model, those efforts with, with Governor Newsom and, his, and him is what allowed other uh, states to realize that they need to take action as well. And that's what led us to the, the, the follow on orders and actually being able to make sure that we didn't happen, have happen what we saw in New York happen in San Francisco or in LA, even though LA was still hammered. From those efforts, and there was so much more data that we started to realize that was just one part, because then it was like, hey, how do we help policymakers with richer, deeper understanding of ideas? And we had to bring data in and draw the insights. And luckily for, for, for me, one of those people who answered the call on the first ring was Roger. And, and Roger said, I'd be happy to volunteer. And because we were all volunteers, no one was paid. This is all volunteer all the time. And, and we were all just trying to do our best. And Roger, you should take, 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 the, take over because you, sure. you led the next portion. Yeah, so one of the interesting things that happened is what came out of that model was a need to look at the mobility data. And so we started getting a lot of thing, uh, data about how people are moving around. And we, we noticed like some things about that that ended up leading, and I think this is what's so interesting about it, is the data led to thinking a lot about ethnography. It ended up being behavior that mattered and then turning that behavior into something we could do. So I'll just give one kind of quick example. In the spring in Los Angeles, there is a bioluminescent event. So these algae glow and people wanna to go to the beach to look at them. And the people brought this up and we're like, well, what are we gonna do about it? And so like, we gotta keep people off the beaches. We gotta keep people off the beaches. And it's like, at that time, so this is April, I think like late April, early May, I think enough people on the team knew it was an aerosol and that spreading apart was okay. You know, so, I mean, but I, I, this is my remembering it. It might've not been as clear as it seems now that now we know for sure it's an aerosol, but that's how I remember it. And one of the things we did is like, no, we're not gonna be able to keep people off the beaches. Let's keep people safe on the beaches. So here's what we had. We had, we knew that people were moving around a little bit that and I think at that time there was a little like upward movement. And so we kind of like, you know, told people in Los Angeles that what you need to do is, you know, maybe have some people to keep people spread apart and stuff. And, and of course, there weren't going to be as many people anyway as doing that. And then we started doing stuff like preparing for Thanksgiving in August. You know, what do you tell people? The harvest was a big, you know, the real boost in California's rates came because of the harvest, which was like a perfect equation for how you're going to get infections in a community. And I don't know if you remember, I think Imperial County at one time had the highest rates in the world. And that's, it was totally because of the harvest. So what we ended up doing is using data to try to communicate to the people in the state and to think about kind of behavior things that then we would maybe build new, and they really weren't models. They were really just kind of studies about what we could do or what was happening that we could intervene better. And so we, we started going from where everything was kind of statewide at first to talking about rural versus urban because there's very different things going on depending on the uh, kind of density and, 
characteristics. And you know, trying to also learn things like the Bay Area did better than the rest of the state. And I think the, the trivial reasons why really ended up not being the reasons why. The trivial reason was people could remote work easier and an educated population. And it ends up, and this isn't something we found, but a lot of it had to do with the Bay Area's experience with AIDS and having to deal with another uh, pandemic and that it was community, you know, kind of community access. So as we started seeing mobility data showing more movement, we, we brought in someone from New Haven who had done some like, like really interesting work around how do you deal with that community part. So what I like to think is what happened is the basis was laid with data and then we were using that to go to this kind of next level of mixing that data with some kind of qualitative and behavior. And we had some ethnographers on the team. We started doing a lot of surveys and we would use those surveys to, in the end, Deji, I don't know how much of you were involved towards the end of this, but really the surveys ended up being the driving force behind yeah. the kind of comms that were going afterwards, which is again, another kind of qualitative thing, but we made sure that, that the surveys were doing, were being a better instrument for pulling stuff. and. You know, like, like this is one of those lucky breaks. I happen to run all the surveys at O'Reilly. So, I, you know, I, I had some survey experience and we were able to, you know, bring that in and, and, and improve yeah. there. Kara DeFrias really deserves credit for, for kind of having the survey idea. What she did is she basically convinced the state to basically put just as an open-ended kind of set of questions on, the, on one of the highly trafficked web pages. And, and it just sort of sampled and it was just a way of getting feedback. But the problem is it was very, it's very hard to get a feedback on a state the size of California, just given the disparity. And so one of the things that was prepared every, every night at that point was basically a briefing book for the governor and the key staff. And it had charts and graphs and all sorts of really important key insights, but also it had snippets of key things that we heard from the real population, re real stories. And so the, these weren't data points anymore. They, they were people, they had names, they had ages, they had stories. And, and you read those things and you could, you could feel the fear, you could feel the pain. And, and so no longer could you just be like, well, it's an uptick, eh, we'll see what happens. No, that uptick destroyed a family. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, it's just a harvest. No, we're about to destroy a community. What are we going to do about it? And so it changes the whole narrative and the approach you take from just being a data science thing and you know, sort of thinking about this in this abstract and playing with graphs to if we do not act right now with immediate sense of urgency, somebody will die. It's not an if someone will die and our actions directly help the, the shift in balance of who that is. And, and how do we make sure that they get the best shot at surviving? Our job fundamentally was to use data to give everyone a shot at living. If a hospital doesn't have oxygen, figure out how to get them the oxygen so those people have a chance. If people don't realize that the people around them are highly infective, let's give them a shot to actually be able to take safety measures in their own hands so they can survive and increase the probability that they are okay or some other family member that they may expose will be okay. Yeah, I just wanna say one thing that was really striking to me about it, right? Obviously this kind of thing is in a politics, it's in the realm of politics, was 
this group of volunteers were, went out of their way to always treat every group, every person as worthwhile. That there was no, there was really no politics in the kind of traditional polarizing way we think about it going on. It was always about how to keep people safe and how do we, and mostly it was about how to tell them the information they need that they can try to be safer and, and do the right things. And it was really quite, I don't know, like enervating to, to, to see that, that going on with it. But I guess this relates back to my earlier point about the annotation and narration is that, you know, we ended up moving from learning from the data and then moving to this, you know, kind of alternate approach that I think ended up be, being effective downstream. Do you have a sense of how effective this was? Like when you sort of, I mean, it sounds like there's a whole bunch of different kinds of interventions you were doing. Is it, is it possible to even know, like if you, you hadn't done these things, like what, what would have happened? Like, do you, do you feel good oh, yeah. about the overall effectiveness of, of, of this response? Yeah, there's, there's a blog post that, that Sam Shaw wrote that kind of talks about this. And there's been a whole lot of estimates. And I think we'll continue to see estimates and sort of a lot of people doing deep analysis for decades to come. And, and I, I feel, I think I've been, received a fair amount of criticism and it's okay to receive criticism about what people would describe as a very strong policy response and that we were too aggressive in shutting down the economy and taking the action we did. I, I actually sleep well at night knowing that we took the strong action that we did because if we didn't, I mean, I was, on the, I was in contact very regularly with friends who were on the front lines in New York City. I was on the calls with people who were in the ER who were showing me how they were, they had literally, just like in a kindergarten, they had a wall with like paper brown bags that you put your masks in because you just need to come back and reuse them. And, and, mm -hmm. and you know, you were, people forget how many physicians and nurses and janitorial staff, the people who we don't often think about in the healthcare system that died in service. And, and when you lose that capacity, you don't have the capacity to get back up. You, you don't have, a, there's just no one else to take care. And in what you're seeing happen in Brazil, what you're seeing happen in India, that could have easily been us. People think, oh, we did. Remember, there was no remdesivir. There, like people didn't even know about ventilators and how, like, do we flip a person over? Do we set someone up? We had no information. We had a Slack channel that was created literally for physicians just to share information from one group to another about what they were learning. Like that's how little information we had. Now, what's behind this? A decade of underinvesting in public health, more than a decade. Did we have to end up this way? Absolutely not. This is an abject failure of literally 20 plus years of not investing. President Obama called for the like a massive, you know, revamp of this. You know, in in you know after Ebola, we saw this with MERS. We saw this with SARS. We've seen this many times over. And people often think like, oh, we're through the pandemic. This is not pandemic flu. This is not pandemic tuberculosis. This is not the next coronavirus, which will show up. We will expect another coronavirus. And so I don't say that to be a doom 
doomsayer, I say it as these are the systems that we need to get into place now to be ready for what's next so that we don't have to just say one size fits all, shut everything down. We can be smart because we are going to have to create this as a, as a knob, if you will, of dialing things open, dialing things back, depending on what we're seeing in which community. And a lot of this is going to be really tough because it's socioeconomic also. And, and as Roger pointed out, like you get very different dynamics from one region to another. I guess yeah, as it, a, or, you know, as like an outside observer, it, you know, it hasn't felt like the, the levels of COVID that different regions saw was exactly correlated with the thoughtfulness of the, the COVID response. Do you think that's fair or, or am I, am I, is it, is it just the data is noisy or am I like missing something there? Say more. I don't think I fully understand. What you well, mean. I guess it, it seems to me, I, I, and I have not, I did not prep by like looking deeply at the data, but I've had this sense that like, you know, some states that really sort of aggressively put in controls, maybe, or the states that put aggressive controls in quickly, sometimes they ended up having like more COVID cases than states that seem to ignore it. And like some states, like it sounds like, you know, California had a really thoughtful response. It seems like some even governors are kind of like, hey, this isn't even a problem. So I can't even imagine like how that state could have any kind of reasonable response when the leadership doesn't even believe that there's an issue when there obviously is. Yeah. I, so like, I, I guess it, right. it seems really hard to, to know how much the interventions really mattered. Right. So I think there's a bunch of stuff. And then Roger, I'd, I'd love to well, let me just be real quick and then you should play it. Is the first is we're still scratching the surface in our understanding of COVID. And, and so I think a lot is still going to be learned. Like we, we now know, like as we were in the summer and we were really worried about protests that were happening, like we were really worried at Sturgis rally. We thought, oh my gosh, these are going to be super spreading events. It turned out we dodged a bullet. Like I, I think people are like, oh, you're wrong. I could look at it as we dodged a bullet. Like, because if that, if that was a highly contagious, like more like measles, we'd be in real trouble. The other part I think, which is there is, is one of the things that happened is because of the actions here, a lot of people did start to take COVID very seriously on, on a personal level. And they go, oh, this isn't just some California's taking this action. Maybe we should take it seriously. But the, the other example of this is the, the version that you're seeing in India, which is they stopped taking it seriously. They started to hold big political rallies. They gave away their vaccines and they're not shutting down still. And then people are partying in other aspects. And that has led to the spike that, that is, you know, it's decimating because, you know, there's no path out now. There, like you have, what you see in the COVID numbers today is a reflection of four weeks ago. But Roger, I'd love your, your... There's like using the machine learning language, there's a lot of features that go into that, what goes on with this. The protests ended up not being super spreader. Sturgis was. Look at what happened in the Dakotas, right? Those are places without a lot of like cross mixing of people because they're, they're relatively isolated and remote and they had the worst caseloads in the whole world. And it's not clear that it was totally Sturgis, but there's a lot of thought that it was Sturgis and that their political response was not very strong. Now, those are states with less than a million people each. So the impact isn't as great, but you know, like what, you know, there was different response, right? And they had a much worse result. Now what happened in Florida, 
I think can be looked at, at differently. And I'll just bring up, and I know this isn't supposed to be a political uh, discussion per se, but I have enough parents who live in Florida. And uh, you know, people have self-preservation. And I think that there was enough knowledge out there that at some point with or without these kind of, whether the government was intervening or not, where like enough people were trying to play it safe and we're, we're doing the, the, the kind of right things. And yes, there were people who were, you know, in that kind of obnoxious way about individual liberty and stuff like that. And, you know, I always want to take one of those people and say, you need to talk to my friends from Taiwan. Because if you know anyone from Taiwan who went through, I guess it was SARS, they, as a collective group, kind of knew how to act and, and, and do the right things. And it's, you know, it, it, giving up some things that feel like a freedom or whatever seem, seem kind of worthwhile in the long run to uh, tamp things down. And of course, Taiwan had a much better response than others. So, so it's hard to take out the American context and how people behave. And there's, there's plenty of examples that would support one position or the other, you know? But uh, personally, I'm more comfortable with the intervention. I, I mean, I realized that it was really bad for the economy and stuff. And I think things like maybe the way school were opened and so forth could maybe have been handled differently. But, you know, there, we've got a lot, a lot to learn. Well, I really, I really appreciate all the work that, that both of you did. And that's actually a segue to a, a question I really wanted to also want to make sure I asked you, which is, you know, for, for kind of a, someone just starting their career in data science, many, maybe most of the people in that situation that I talk to these days, they really care about doing something meaningful, maybe getting involved in, in kind of public sector stuff. I guess, what, what advice would you give someone, you know, maybe just graduating now who wants to do interesting work and have exciting careers like both of you um, have had? Where, where would you tell them to start, I guess? That's a good question. You know, what, what I've been telling people is to remember this kind of human side of things and don't get too lost in the numbers. And, and this is more like, this isn't quite career advice, I think what you're asking, but also you've gotten a bunch of tools that are pretty cool, but that doesn't mean they are, they're applicable in every case. Is to always like kind of work your way up from, is there a simple thing that will work? How well, how far does it get you? And then work from there. And then, you know, when you need this sophisticated tool and when it's worth it to, to kind of jump in with that. So TensorFlow is not the answer to every right classification problem. There's other, other tools that, that can work really well. But also, I mean, just, yeah, find things. You know, I think, I think I just saw a tweet today, DJ, from Rick Clow, that the state is hiring. So if you are trying to do some good things. Like I said, I was so impressed with the people at the state and their attitudes about trying to do the right things and, and being good for all Californians. But that's a, a great place to start. Now, the place maybe I would go with, because I agree with Roger on all of this, no, no surprise, is, and, and hopefully what people have taken away from listening is like, th this is a team sport. And, and, you know, the amount I've learned and grown from you, Lucas, from Roger, from the people that you've introduced me to, the people like we've all hung out with, it, the, the thing that you want to do at your, at the early part of your career is be around amazing, awesome people, be around awesome. And, and, and if you're around awesome people, you'll become awesome too. You may feel like you're an imposter to start. And then, you know, you got to kind of figure out how to shake off that imposter syndrome. But if you're around amazing people, 
they're, they're going to carry you. And, and one of the things, and that could be, it's, it could be in the public sector, it could be in the private sector, it could be in a hybrid sector. But I fundamentally believe that if you're around those great people, that's what carries you forward. Like I've been so fortunate early in my career being around amazing people in academia, then being around amazing people in public service the first time after 9-11, then coming you know, back out here to Silicon Valley, meeting all of you and kind of being exposed to that group and then going back into government back and forth several times. Each time we're able to pull in amazing. And, and the thing that people don't realize is People ask me all the time, like, what, what, like, you know, like, how, why do people, why do people pick up the phone when you call, and then why won't they pick up versus others? And it's because I'm trying to do it for the team. It's a we approach. It's I'm not, I'm not trying to just further it for one perspective. And I think we've all had that that philosophy that this this is kind of a collective movement. And you know, as much, and I will go on the record saying this, which is. I get way too much credit. The credit belongs to the community. It belongs to the teams, all these people. I've just had the good fortune of being in certain roles that gets to shape certain things, but those people have also shaped me. They're the ones that have helped make me into what I am and help make that, that happen. And if you're early in your career and you can find a place where you're learning at three to seven times the rate of somebody that's just in a regular job, you're going to do fine and, and seek out those places. Don't optimize for a salary. I'm not saying it's not important, but optimize for learning. Your first derivative, your second derivative should be highly positive on your learning experience quotients. Yeah, I, I want to focus on a particular part of that because I completely agree. And I, this talk that I give is like kind of my general talk about data topics starts off with humility, right? And humility is a key to learning. And I also will tell anyone, like they say, I need to hire a data scientist. I said, you know, you do that in one, you need to hire two. And no matter what you're doing, you need to be paired with other people. And that the, in terms of finding an opportunity, I think you got to make sure you're not siloed. And I, I want to give a particular kind of example of what I think happens is when you get into the data, it's almost like a, a scientist looking at the universe You say, the universe is my data. And without outside perspective, you don't like learn. You, the data almost in a way like kind of stops your expansion because that's all that you can see, but there's a lot beyond that. So I know like, you know, Ben Lorica, who was one of the people I was lucky enough to work with, who, who taught me so much and, you know, he's a, a, a real math PhD and I, I didn't have that kind of background. We did not release anything without the other looking at it. And we were on the phone almost every morning talking about what we were doing. So when you're looking for those career opportunities, make sure that you're not going to be siloed that you're gonna have as much opportunity to work with other people, like almost like in a peer programming way, like look for that and look for companies where you're gonna be able to talk to other people in the organization so that you're getting all these things that DJ was talking about, the opportunities to learn from amazing people and just, just picking up little things like DJ's story about the data dictionary working so well. You know, The next job you go to and there's no data dictionary, you're gonna make sure there's one there, right? And, and, and like picking up on those kind of things because they can be so effective. So I think just making sure that you're like an octopus and your career move is your tentacles are all over the place. It's funny you say you both say that. I, I, I mean, I just totally agree with it. And I think it's one of the reasons that, you know, we, this is 
totally shameless self-promotion, but I really think it's true. We've, we've, you know, we've really tried to build a friendly, smart, but really like inclusive community at Weights and Vices with stuff like this, where people can kind of meet, you know, smart people that they might not otherwise have access to based on, you know, kind of luck and geography. And so, you know, I just really encourage people to like engage um, with our community. If you're watching this, you're kind of part of it. And, you know, we, we love answering people's questions and hearing from people and, and hearing about what they're working on. So anyway, I just totally appreciate you guys coming on and, and talking and answering my open-ended questions and, and also appreciate all the work that you've done throughout your career. It's been inspiring to watch and clearly directly connected to a lot of good in the world. So thank you. Thanks. It's been fun, to, ha it's been yeah. fun to catch up. At Waste and Biases, we make this podcast, Gradient Descent, to learn about making machine learning work in the real world. But we also have a part to play here. We are building tools to help all the people that are on this podcast make their work better and make machine learning models actually run in production. And if you're interested in joining us on this mission, we are hiring an engineering, sales, growth, product, and customer support. And you should go to wmb.me slash hiring and check out our job postings. We'd love to talk about working with you.